Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi. Hi, Jared. Welcome. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Come Thanks on for having me. Welcome. Appreciate it. In the spring of 2019, sure. Jared Kushner sat for an interview with Jonathan Swan of Axios on HBO. Interesting people in American politics and people haven't really heard you. Swan went to meet Kushner at the home in Washington, D.C. he shares with his wife, Ivanka Trump, and their three children. And it's very clear to me you hate doing this. It's not my natural thing. No, you hate it. They sat on a white couch. There was tasteful artwork on the wall. Jared Kushner was wearing a white Oxford shirt, open at the neck. Do you ever think about what you would have become if you had a different upbringing? You know, if you didn't have some of the advantages that you had? Um, uh, no. I mean, I, I think that I've, I've definitely... I uh, feel blessed to have had a, a great, you know, great parents, great, great life, great opportunities. Jared Kushner's grandparents arrived in New York Harbor in 1949 with $2 to their name. This is an amazing country. You know, my grandparents came here as refugees, and uh, they were able to build a great life for themselves. You know, my father worked hard, was able to be successful. How has that experience changed the way you think about things? Have they shared what it was like being a refugee? It was more they would share what it was like being persecuted. I mean, my, right. my grandparents survived the Nazis, and my grandfather came here on a Tuesday, he got a job on a Thursday, and, and he just, you know, worked very, very hard, and he was able to create the American dream. When I came to Washington, the only thing I brought to my office was a picture of them. It's a great reminder of how great this country is, where you know, my grandparents could be on the on the precipice of life or death and then come to this country and, you know, 70 years later, you know, their, their grandson's working in the White House. The story of Jared Kushner's grandparents is one of tenacity and bravery and ingenuity. It is also a story of a family willing to break rules and to elide the truth where necessary, including misrepresenting their family relationships to ease their immigration into the United States. Welcome to Trump, Inc., a podcast from WNYC and ProPublica. I'm Andrea Bernstein. Today on the show, I wrote a book, American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. It's a multi-generational saga of the two families. It's also about the rise of a new class of Americans with extraordinary wealth and, increasingly, an unfettered ability to change the direction of our democracy. This episode is drawn from the book. There's an excerpt of the book published on NewYorker.com. Jared Kushner, presidential son-in-law, is one of the longest-lasting and most powerful White House advisors. In three years, he's outlasted Ryan's Priebus, John Kelly, Steve Bannon, Mike Flynn, H.R. McMaster, John Bolton, Jim Mattis, Dan Coats, Jeff Sessions, Don McGahn, Rex Tillerson, and others too many to name. Kushner has been handed an unusually broad array of responsibilities, from reforming the criminal justice system to overseeing trade relationships with Mexico and China to attempting to broker peace in the Middle East. But even that doesn't give you a full picture of Kushner's role as a loyal family member of a president who values loyalty and family above almost everything. Jared Kushner may just be the second most powerful man in America. Today we tell you about Jared, and to understand Jared, you need to understand his family story. It begins in Nazi-occupied Poland. 
Act One: The Escape. My name is Dr. Sidney Langer, and I am the director of the Oral History Project of the Holocaust Center at Kane College of New Jersey. In 1982, when Jared was a toddler, his grandmother Ray Kushner sat down for an interview. Her testimony was taken as part of the Holocaust Remembrance Movement. One of its central functions was to record the words of Holocaust survivors. Ms. Kushner, thank you very much for coming. Could you tell me a little bit about? Her interviewer begins by asking her about where she was born, a town called Novogrudek, Novogrudek. in Poland. Poland. It's now Belarus. We lived a comfortable life, a quiet life. How large was uh, your family? Our family was a, f- a father, mother, and four kids. Ray's family name, Kushner, means furrier. Her parents ran two shops where they made and sold fur coats and hats. Ray recalls that when she was a teenager, travelers brought reports of German violence in southern Poland. They told us stories. They told us that they're killing Jews. We didn't believe them. We said, what kind of people was he telling? They told us stories that the Jews open a grave, and later they put them in the grave alive, and they killed them. In 1941, the Germans marched into Novogrudik. For a while, things weren't too bad. Then, on a freezing day in December, thousands of Jews were rounded up and taken to a courthouse. Like the courthouse in Elizabeth, a big courthouse. Like the courthouse in Elizabeth, New Jersey, she says. Were you together with your family? Together with family? my family. With my father, mother, the two sisters, and a brother. And then we came into the building, and they surrounded us. White-gloved Nazis gave directions. And they made you to the right and you to the left. The right is to live, and the left is to die. The Kushners were sent to die. I went over to the German, and I said, I'm young. I want to live. I want to work. Leave us in the other side. He refused. The Kushners were put in line to board trucks. Then they were pulled out of the line. The Nazis were looking for furriers to clothe the German army in its push towards Moscow. Ray's mother didn't know what to believe. She told her older daughter, Esther, to run. To my older sister, she says, run. Run, they're going to be killed all. Maybe one from you is going to be alive. Esther ran. But a boy she knew from the town caught her and forced her into the line for the trucks. And we saw her walking on the truck through the window. She was driven, along with 5,000 Jews, to the outskirts of town, where they were forced to dig a trench, then stand beside it as they were shot, falling into their own mass grave. Jared Kushner's grandmother's sister, Esther Kushner, was killed that day. The Germans put a barbed wire fence around the courthouse and some other buildings and turned them into the Novogrudic ghetto. One morning, Ray's mother was taken and shot. The Nazis came and removed all the youngest children and killed them. That's what Ray Kushner described in her testimony. By the summer of 1943, only a few hundred survivors remained in the ghetto. 
they developed a plan to escape to the forest. They'd heard there was a band of Jewish partisans, a combat unit camped not far from Novogrudik, who would protect them. A message came. If the people in the ghetto could escape, the partisans would shelter them. So they smuggled digging tools past the Nazis, bits of wood, spoons. And 70 boys started to dig the tunnel. 70 boys started to dig a tunnel, Ray says. And we couldn't put away the dirt, no place. We couldn't get a move with one shovel of dirt outside. They needed to hide the dirt. They could not let the Nazis see even one shovel of it. To what we did, they piled up between walls and under the beds. They piled it between the walls and under the bed. And we dig this tunnel for three months. It was two feet wide and a thousand feet long, enough to get them past the barbed wire fence and the searchlights. On a rainy night, on the eve of the Jewish High Holy Days, they made their move. Every one of the 250 or so Jews got to the other side. But the boys at the front, Ray's brother Honon among them, became disoriented in the rain, in the dark. They ran away from the forest. The next day, Hanon Kushner was killed by the Nazis. But Ray, her father, and her younger sister Lisa made it to the partisan camp. They lived in the forest through the brutally cold winter and into 1944, when Soviet soldiers, on the march, pushed the Nazis back. Ray and her family returned to Novogrudik. It was a wasteland. None of the Jews wanted to stay, but they had nowhere to go, and the Russians wouldn't let them leave. We were afraid to move. You couldn't. You needed a passport, and you needed the papers. It's not so easy. They needed passports. They needed papers. Nobody opened the door for us. Nobody wanted to take us in. In May of 1945, the Germans surrendered. The war in Europe was over. Not long after, the surviving Kushners boarded a train for Budapest. They told the Russian soldiers they were Greeks. In Budapest, Ray reunited with a fellow survivor she'd known from her childhood, Yussel Berkowitz. He'd escaped a Nazi labor camp and spent much of the war hiding in a dugout shelter. The war had devastated both of their families. They wanted to start a new one. In a ceremony in Budapest, along with 20 other couples, Ray Kushner and Yussel Berkowitz were married by a rabbi. I'm Lillian Gordon doing an interview with Ray Kushner on July 25th. In 1996, Ray sat down to give another testimony, this one collected by the USC Shoah Foundation. Jared was in high school then. What is your name? My name is Ray Kushner. Can you spell that? The interviewer begins with a series of basic questions. Name, date of birth. I was born February 27, 1923. And then gets to this one. And what was your maiden name? My maiden name was Kushner. Your maiden name and your married name are the same names? Same, yeah, we are relatives. But Ray's husband's name was Berkowitz, not Kushner. There's a reason Ray kept her maiden name. 
After they fled Poland, Ray and her family made their way southwest, sometimes by foot, hundreds of miles. We went from border to border, from border to border. We went from border to border, she says. From Austria to Hungary. From Austria to Hungary. You came right to the United States, or how no. did you get from Hungary to... Oh, yeah, yeah, we bought three and a half years in Italy in a displaced camp. A displaced persons camp, a refugee camp. How did you get across the border into Italy? A group of Jews helped them cross the Alps illegally into Italy. Did you have to sneak across? Or? Sneak across. They showed us the base. They had ready people, you know, but they knew what to do. They took us around the border. In Italy, they stayed in the refugee camp. They weren't citizens. They couldn't work. Yossel bought and sold things on the black market, like tobacco. He was arrested and put in jail. Ray had to bribe a guard to get him out. So we were three and a half years in Italy. Nobody wanted to open the borders for us. They tried Australia, South Africa, Israel, United States. And we were waiting for the quota. We were waiting for the quota, Ray says. The U.S. was still tightly restricting Jewish immigration. In 1948, aid organizations were only able to resettle 847 Jews in the U.S. Ray's family had five people, her father, Naum Kushner, her sister, her husband, and their new baby daughter. As the Kushners understood it, U.S. visa rules at the time favored fathers and sons. That meant it would have been easier to get into the U.S. if Yussel had been Naum Kushner's son rather than his son-in-law. The Kushners did what they had to do for their family to survive. In their paperwork, Yussel and Ray switched places. He changed his first name, too, and became Joseph Kushner, Naum's son. Ray became the daughter-in-law. In the same documents, their country of origin was incorrectly listed as Germany, which was also more favorable for immigration purposes. I saw those documents. They're part of a 23-page case file that's been buried for 70 years. It was maintained by the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, HIAS. It lists the family relationships and interview notes and tracks the family's progress from Italy to New York. In March of 1949, the Kushners arrived in America. Workers from Hyas greeted them at the dock, took them in, helped them to find a home, helped them to find work. According to notes by the aid workers, they had $2 in their pockets. Joseph became a carpenter, commuting from Brooklyn to New Jersey, often saving the $1 round-trip bus fare by sleeping in framed-out houses. By the mid-1950s, Joe and Ray had saved up enough money to go in on the purchase of three lots of land in northern New Jersey. The Kushner family real estate business was born. Joe and Ray had three more children, Murray and Charles, who was named for Ray's brother, Hanan, who'd been shot escaping the Nazis. The youngest child was Esther, named for Ray's older sister, who was killed in the courthouse massacre. The story of Ray's escape and of her family's illegal border crossing and of how Yussel Berkowitz became Joe Kushner, all of it was written about. Many years later, in a book 
Ray's children wrote for her 75th birthday, right before the family split forever. We'll be right back. We're back. Act Two. The Kushners in America. Beginning in the 1950s, a thousand homes a week were built in New Jersey for a thousand straight weeks. Government programs fueled this boom. New types of federal loans standardized mortgage lending and made home buying possible for many Americans. The $25 billion Federal Aid Interstate Highway Act made it possible to get to all those new homes. The largest infrastructure program in American history. Joe Kushner built and built. By the time of his death in 1985, he was a millionaire many times over. Still doing calculations in his native Yiddish, Joe had built 4,000 homes, including four large houses for his children. In 1985, Joe Kushner's son Charles, Jared Kushner's father, set up a real estate business of his own. Jared Kushner was four years old. Unlike his father, Charlie was comfortable with debt and with risk. He became a generous and public philanthropist and a major political donor. At home, Charlie hosted large family gatherings. Jared and his cousins spent Shabbats together. The cousins went to a school named after their grandfather, the Joseph Kushner Hebrew Academy. In the 1990s, Charlie began to blur the lines between his family business and his own interests. This drew the attention of his brother Murray, who had his own real estate business, but was partners with Charlie in certain companies. Murray sued Charlie for misappropriating company funds for entertainment and for campaign donations. Among donations that Charlie made in the names of others, $2,000 came from his 11-year-old son, Jared Kushner. Charlie Kushner had given over $3 million to Democrats, which made him the biggest donor to Democrats in New Jersey. He was the biggest donor to New Jersey's governor. He was nominated to lead the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, a bi-state agency with a budget larger than those of many states. Then, everything imploded. Good afternoon. Uh, my name's Christopher J. Christie. I'm the United States Attorney for the District of New Jersey. In 2004, Chris Christie, New Jersey's top prosecutor, gathered a group of journalists in a conference room in New York. We're here today to announce the filing of a criminal complaint against Mr. Charles Kushner. Criminal complaint alleges three Christie's team of prosecutors had been investigating Charlie Kushner for years, running down tax and campaign finance violations. Charlie had hired expensive lawyers to fight the case, but it wasn't going away. He suspected his sister and brother-in-law were helping the prosecution. So Charlie took matters into his own hands. The details were sorted. Specifically, Mr. Kushner engaged in a conspiracy with co-conspirators to hire prostitutes to entice witnesses who were cooperating with the federal investigation into engaging in sex acts with those prostitutes and to have those sex acts then videotaped. 
Charlie paid an off-duty cop to hire a prostitute who approached Charlie's brother-in-law, Billy, at the time to eat diner in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Billy was married to Charlie's younger sister, Esther. Billy met with the prostitute again at the Red Bull Motel, where a video camera secretly recorded their encounter. One of our cooperating witnesses did, in fact, engage in sexual conduct with a prostitute hired by Mr. Kushner and his co-conspirators, and his sexual conduct was captured on videotape. That encounter happened in December. At the time, the video was Charlie's secret. Then his mother, Ray Kushner, died in March. In May, Chris Christie's office notified people who were under investigation in the Charlie Kushner tax case. That's when Charlie sent the videotape to his sister, Esther, who he thought might testify against him. Charlie timed it so the tape would arrive on the eve of her son Jacob's engagement party. Charlie wanted to send the tape to Esther's children, too. He was talked out of it by the police officer he paid to hire the prostitute. At Christie's press conference, a reporter asked if the tape would ever be made public. I, I have no idea. I, I, I assume, I, I, I have no idea. I assume that if, if, if there were a trial in this case, that that might be something that would be considered. There was no trial. Charlie Kushner pleaded guilty to tax evasion, making illegal campaign donations and witness tampering. Over 600 people wrote to the judge, speaking of Charlie's care for sick children and his generosity to Israeli and Jewish and Holocaust remembrance causes. He served a year in prison. Associates in New Jersey refer to this period as when Charlie went away. Jared Kushner, then studying both law and business at New York University, flew down to visit his father most weekends at the federal prison camp near Montgomery, Alabama. During these trips, Jared developed a narrative of resentment. He later told New York Magazine that his father's siblings, quote, stole every piece of paper from his office and they took it to the government, siblings that he literally made wealthy for doing nothing. He gave them interests in the business for nothing. All he did was put the tape together and send it. Was it the right thing to do? At the end of the day, it was a function of saying, you're trying to make my life miserable? Well, I'm doing the same. End quote. As the great poet Mike Tyson said, one of my favorite quotes is, everybody's got a plan until they get hit. At a Hofstra University commencement in 2014, Jared reflected on the sudden change his life had taken. My first year in law school, I had a little bit of a setback, which forced me at that point to get into the family business and and start dealing with things. When Charlie went to prison, Jared stepped into a leadership role at the family company. By the time he was 26, he'd bought a skyscraper, 666 Fifth Avenue, for $1.8 billion, the highest price anyone had paid for an office building in Manhattan. Charlie, a convicted felon, couldn't sign the mortgage documents. Jared did. As the years went on, Jared's sense of victimization solidified. During the 2016 campaign, Jared said, Christie tried to destroy my father, as described by Christie in his book, Let Me Finish. Jared said, This was a family matter, a matter to be handled by the family or by the rabbis, not prosecutors. Around the time he bought 666 Fifth Avenue, Jared also bought a weekly newspaper, the New York Observer. He saw himself as a disruptor. 
When I was 25 years old and I bought a newspaper with no experience in media, I came into a group of people who were very ingrained in the ways that they did their business. And I noticed that the industry was changing very rapidly. And for me, it was very important to try to drive change and get us to a different place. And so I would push. Almost immediately after Jared purchased it, the New York Observer did change. Its editor, Peter Kaplan, told people that Jared pushed him to assign a hit job on Chris Christie. Kaplan refused. Jared denies targeting Christie, but multiple former employees recalled him boasting about upcoming hit jobs in the paper. One was Kyle Pope, who's now the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. In a 2017 interview with the Vanity Fair podcast Inside the Hive, Pope said at first Jared seemed polite and hands-off. But then he started to, like, he would get pissed off at people, and he would come in and say, we need to take a look at them, or, you know, these, you really ought to look at this, because this guy, everybody knows he's a bad guy. Then, Pope says, Jared Kushner ratcheted it up. He called me and said, we can have to do a hit job on this guy. And it was like some random uh, commercial banker at, at Bank of America that nobody in their right mind had ever heard of. Pope told Jared, we'll see. And he kept pushing it. I remember at some point I just said, you know, we, we can't use this word hit job. Um, it, it's not appropriate. You can't say it. It's like a prelude to a libel case. Um, and anyway, we're not going to do this story because nobody cares about this guy. Pope said he came to believe that Kushner wanted the observer to be a bullhorn for his business interests. Pope asked the Kushners about this. They did not respond. In 2009, Jared Kushner married Ivanka Trump. He leveraged the observer for her family interests, too. At one point, Jared ordered up a favorable profile of a private banker from Deutsche Bank, Rosemary Vrablic, who gave huge loans to both the Trump and Kushner family businesses. And when the New York Attorney General sued the Trumps for fraud at Trump University, Donald Trump tweeted there would be an article to, quote, get even. Months later, there was indeed such an article in Jared Kushner's New York Observer. It was widely understood to be a hit job. Jared Kushner published a newspaper in an era when newspapers were cratering. He purchased 666 Fifth Avenue on the eve of the Great Recession. The building had nearly failed in 2011 when the Kushners managed barely to refinance it. According to someone familiar with the deal, the lesson Jared took from this was not, holy shit, I almost lost everything. It was, I should take on as much risk as I can. And her husband, Jared. Come on up, Jared. Act three, the campaign. In January of 2016, Jared Kushner, who had always been a more or less behind-the-scenes guy, stepped onto the national stage at a rally in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And Jared is a great young man, went to Harvard, very smart, great, doing a fantastic job in business. He's in the real estate business, done an amazing job uh, in his own right, just incredible. But... Jared threw himself into his father-in-law's campaign, and Trump's political momentum opened doors for Jared's business. The Kushners had a billion dollars of debt coming due on their Manhattan skyscraper. As Trump racked up primary victories, Jared knocked on doors, asking for financing. He was utilizing his position, one financier said. 
With each primary victory, he said, Jared felt more power. Then Trump won enough delegates to secure the Republican nomination. Tonight, we close one chapter in history, and we begin another. At this press conference at the end of the primary season, Jared was standing by his father-in-law. There was, of course, dissonance between Trump's campaign and Jared's personal story. In the summer of 2016, Dana Schwartz, who was an entertainment writer at Jared's paper, published an article on The Observer's website. Trump had retweeted an image of Hillary Clinton and a six-sided star, both superimposed on piles of cash. Schwartz gave an interview to Inside Edition. The symbolism was, I mean, hit you on the head with a hammer. It was raining money, a star of David. I mean, to me, it was undeniably, there was anti-Semitic subtext to it. In her article, Schwartz asked Kushner how he could countenance such behavior. She wrote, You went to Harvard and hold two graduate degrees. I'm asking you, not as a gotcha journalist or as a liberal, but as a human being, how do you allow this? Jared published his own response. This is not idle philosophy to me. I am the grandson of Holocaust survivors, he wrote. I know the difference between actual dangerous intolerance versus these labels that get tossed around in an effort to score political points. The difference between me and the journalists and the Twitter throngs who find it so convenient to dismiss my father-in-law is simple. I know him, and they don't. By the time of this exchange, Jared had already attended a fateful meeting at Trump Tower. Donald Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort were there, too. They met with five emissaries of a Russian oligarch the Trumps had worked with. The meeting was to discuss some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia, according to an email. What started as a business relationship was now pivoting to politics. No one in the room questioned it. The Russians were offering dirt on Hillary Clinton. By that time, though it wasn't discussed at the meeting, the Russians had already stolen her emails. Months later, the Russians were back, once again offering dirt. Literal dirt. I'll explain. My name is Jared Kushner. I am senior advisor to President Donald J. Trump. In the summer of 2017, Jared Kushner made a statement in front of the White House. Donald Trump Jr. had just released the emails about the Trump Tower meeting. I have not relied on Russian funds for my businesses. And I have been fully transparent in providing all requested information. In addition to this public statement, Kushner testified behind closed doors to Congress that day. He disclosed another meeting he'd had with a Russian— This one was in December 2016, after Trump was elected. It was with a banker named Sergei Gorkov, the head of a major bank that had been the subject of U.S. sanctions. According to Kushner, Gorkov had a direct line to Putin and was there to discuss U.S.-Russia relations. According to a statement the bank gave to the Washington Post, it was a business meeting. According to the Mueller report, Vladimir Putin had directed Gorkov and other oligarchs to meet with senior Trump officials. When Mueller's investigators questioned Kushner, he went out of his way to convey that he thought little of this meeting. He said he did not engage in any preparation for the meeting and that no one on the transition team even did a Google search for Gorkov's name. But Gorkov 
had prepared. The Russians had researched Jared Kushner's family history so thoroughly, they understood the importance of his grandparents' hometown. According to Kushner's statement to Congress, quote, The meeting with Mr. Gorkov lasted 20 to 25 minutes. He introduced himself and gave me two gifts. One was a piece of art from Novogrudik, the village where my grandparents were from in Belarus, and the other was a bag of dirt from that same village. The bag of dirt had a particular resonance. It recalled Jared Kushner's grandmother's daring escape from the Nazi ghetto. And the bags of dirt from excavating the tunnel that they hid under the beds and in the walls. Normally, after a president is elected, there's a careful transition process. There's a protocol for who gets to meet with the administration and when. Foreign actors are vetted. There had been a person responsible for this in the Trump campaign, Chris Christie. Over Jared Kushner's objections, Trump had named Chris Christie transition chief. But after Trump was elected, Jared had Christie fired. In his book, Christie wrote, Jared was exacting a plot of revenge against me, a hit job. After Christie was fired, 30 binders full of vetting that Christie had had prepared were tossed into the dumpsters at Trump Tower. After that is when Jared Kushner had his meeting with Sergei Gorkov. Act 4. The White House. After he was appointed senior White House advisor, Jared Kushner announced that, like his father-in-law, he would not fully divest from his family business. Instead, he kept some parts and divested others to close relatives. He began to draw scrutiny. It was reported that he tried to set up a back channel at the Russian embassy. He omitted foreign contacts on his disclosure forms. He had to update the forms 40 times. Then, the New York Times reported that Jared's family business got huge loans from two banks whose representatives had met with him at the White House. So he has a number of meetings with Josh Harris, who is one of the founders of Apollo, a giant private equity firm. And the two of them are discussing a number of things, including a possible job for Mr. Harris. This is Jesse Drucker of the New York Times speaking to Rachel Maddow. And the job doesn't materialize, it turns out, but something else does, which is a few months after um, a series of meetings with Mr. Kushner, Mr. Harris's firm, Apollo, makes this sizable loan to Kushner Companies to refinance this building in Chicago. $184 million. $184 million, which is both a very large loan by the standards of Kushner Companies and an enormous loan by the standards of Apollo. Kushner and the banks denied any improper mix of business and government. Apollo said the loan went through the firm's standard approval process. Then there was this. A whistleblower, Tricia Newbold, a longtime White House official, came forward to report her concerns that dozens of White House officials, including Jared Kushner, had been given security clearances over the objections of career staff. She warned security clearances were being issued contrary to national security. The late member of Congress, Elijah Cummings, pressed the White House for details. She's crying out. She's begging us to do something. Because she simply wants her government 
to work the way it's supposed to work. Cummings did not get the records he sought. Every time the tangle with his family business came up, Jared Kushner dismissed complaints. He said he followed all applicable rules and recused himself from situations where there would be conflict. Over the last two years that I've been here, I've been accused of all different types of things, and uh, all of those things have turned out to be false. Uh, this is Kushner speaking to Fox News host Laura Ingram in the spring of 2019. Uh, when I came to Washington, I had a very successful business career. Uh, I had extensive holdings. I disclosed all my holdings to the uh, Office of Government Ethics, and what I did with that is they told me what to divest, what to keep, what rules to follow. In the White House, Jared continues to be assigned some of the most important work. He's been put in charge of overseeing Trump's re-election campaign and overseeing the construction of a wall at the southern border. According to reports, Jared has vowed to install a wall cam to monitor its construction in real time. We began this episode with a clip from an interview with Jonathan Swan of Axios. In that interview, Swan pushed Kushner to address the contradictions of his family story. You know, you guys have dramatically reduced the number of refugees intake into this country, I think the lowest level in 40 years. Yeah, I think, look, the world right now is in, uh, we inherited a, a crazy world. I think what we have done is last year we but gave... But isn't it, it's always a crazy world, isn't it? Right, I, I think right now you have about 65 million refugees in the world. Right. You can't have all of them come into your no, country. I know, but, but, but what's the well, rationale for cutting so dramatically? Yeah, I, I think that the amount of money you can spend to help refugees resettle in their countries and deal with aid is very impactful. So, we're so you agreed to, with the policy of cutting it? to that level? It doesn't make a difference one way or the other, the number. It's, well, it's, it does. It's, it means people it, are either living here or they're not. Yeah, but in the scheme of the magnitude of the problem we have, I think that we're doing our best to try to make as much impact to allow refugees to be able to go back to their places and conflicts in places like Syria and find ways to make sure that you're funding these situations so that the people who are immediately becoming refugees can have as much care uh, as possible. But we have a lot of tragedies all over the world and that, again, one of the reasons why, as Americans, we're very lucky to be where we are. I tried to ask Jared Kushner more about his family's immigration experience and current White House policies. For my book, I sent him 83 questions, including whether he sees any inconsistencies between the president's current policies and his own family history of crossing borders illegally and fudging their relationships to get a chance at the American dream. He did not answer this question. In the testimony Ray Kushner gave in 1982, she was asked why she wanted to tell her story. Can you, uh, you know, explain why there's more of a desire now to relate the uh, experiences that the people went through during the Holocaust. It was so hard at first, she said. First of all, it was too shocking. If he's not going to tell now, in 20 years, I don't know who's going to be to tell. And now we have still this trend, and we have the, the power to do this and to warn the rest of the world to be careful who is coming up on top of your government. 
You can read a lot more about all of this in an article on NewYorker.com or in my book, American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. You can find it wherever books are sold or by going to andreabernsteinbook.com. This episode was produced by Meg Kramer, Alice Wilder, and Catherine Sullivan. The sound designer is Jared Paul. Matt Collette is the executive producer of Trump, Inc. The editors were Eric Umansky and Nick Varshever. Emily Botine is the vice president for original programming at WNYC. And Stephen Engelberg is the editor-in-chief of ProPublica. Special thanks to Tom Mayer at WW Norton and to David Rode and Fergus McIntosh at The New Yorker. Also to Jonathan Swan at Axios, Matt Katz at WNYC, Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive podcast, the Holocaust Research Center at Kane University, and the USC Shoah Foundation. The original music is by Jared Paul and Hannes Brown.